Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome back, everyone. I am so glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Austin Belsack. He is the founder of CultivatedCulture.com, where he helps people land jobs they love without traditional experience and, catch this, without applying online. Austin's job search system stems from his personal experience transitioning from a new grad with a biology degree, a 2.58 GPA, and a job in healthcare to landing interviews and offers at Microsoft, Google, and Twitter. His strategies have been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Fast Company, and Inc., and he has helped thousands of job seekers land jobs at places like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Tesla, SpaceX, Goldman Sachs. I mean, the list goes on. And again, this is all without applying online. So Austin, thank you so much for coming on the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Thanks for having me, Emily. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, me too, because here's what we were just talking about. There's a lot of parents out there whose kids are doing what you did. They transitioned out of college. They have these new degrees. They're so excited to get their first job or maybe their second job. And frankly, they feel like misfits in the job market. I mean, they are struggling to get noticed. And this is the the one time where they actually want to fit in. You know, they want to prove to these employers that they fit that job. And they're applying online. I shared with you, I talked to one young man who uh, actually applied to over 1,200 jobs and got no response. And, you know, all of this job seeking, job hunt activity is hard enough on its own without a global pandemic. So you've actually been in their shoes, again, with the exception of the COVID part. You've gone through this experience. What was your first job search like? Yeah, it was it was pretty rough. The first job search wasn't even a job search for me when I was still in college. I, I didn't apply and I didn't interview at a single company when I was still a student. So I had an internship that was dropped in my lap through my, my roommate's parents and, you know, pretty true form of nepotism, just, just getting you in the door <laughs> there. And I didn't want a job search. It sounded miserable. It didn't sound fun. And I was really enjoying what college had to offer from the social side of things. So I just took that offer sight unseen and it was well below what I needed to you know, meet those cost of living standards and and live the life that I wanted. And on top of that, it was nowhere close to anything that I was really interested in. And I didn't have a great manager. I didn't work with people that were similar to me and, and had similar values and goals and ambitions. And so that led to the second job search, which I would say was my first real job search. And that went a little bit like the person that you just talked about a second ago, where I went to all the the people that we go to for advice. I went to my parents. I went to my friends. I went to career services. I went to you know Google and LinkedIn and places like that. And everybody told me the same thing, which was to tweak my resume and apply online. And that narrative wasn't too hard to buy into because our whole lives were told that if you go to college and you get this degree and you spend all this money, 
you always have the opportunity to get your foot in the door, right? Somebody will always hire you because you have that degree and you've put in all this work and, and spent all that money. And that quickly turned out to not be the case. So I didn't send out 1,200 applications. I sent out about 300. Um, still a lot. Yeah, it was still way, way, way too many. And Emily, to your point, you said, you know, if something's not working, time to move on. I think I could have taken your advice a little bit earlier. But first month, I applied to 100 jobs and, and didn't get anywhere. And I went back to all those same people. And they all told me uh, the same thing. You know, you just haven't applied to enough places. You know, it's a numbers game. You got to keep throwing applications out there. And that was the first point of recognition for me where something might be a little off. And it was confusing to me that all these groups of people, you know, my parents hadn't job searched in 15 years and my friends got finance degrees and then they went into finance, pretty traditional path. Career services folks are, you know, bless their heart, doing the best that they can with thousands of students coming knocking on their door. But a lot of them hadn't gone down the road that I wanted to go down either. And so, all, but all these people from such different backgrounds all had the same advice. And I thought that was a bit strange. So that next month I said, well, I'll double down on your strategy, but if it doesn't work, you know, I got to do something else. So that's exactly what happened. And over the next month, I applied to 200 places in pretty similar outcome, you know, no interviews, no offers. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting mm -hmm. different results. And mm -hmm. I definitely felt like a crazy person. So I had to switch up my approach a little bit. And that's really where the magic started to happen. So yeah, it, it sounds pretty similar to what a lot of people listening might be experiencing with their kids or have experienced themselves. You know, the online application process is really, really tough. So on that note, why does applying online not work? Yeah, so it really comes down to two things. And they're really driven both by the, the companies who are doing the hiring. But it's the way that we illustrate value. That's thing number one. And thing number two is the process or, or the systems that these companies use for hiring. So if you rewind 20, 25 years ago, you know, the internet is kind of just getting started and, and finding these, you know, commercial applications and all that. But online applications didn't really exist. You know, people applied to companies in very different ways. But companies started to realize that there's all this talent out there. So why are we limiting ourselves to these traditional channels? Why don't we use this new thing called the internet to bring in candidates from anywhere? You know, we're happy to hire a candidate from anywhere in the world if they're the best fit for the role. So let's broaden our scope. So they did that and they received a massive influx of, of applications. And that's still kind of a, a, one of the issues today that they're struggling with. But in order to combat that, they started investing in software that will scan these applications and these resumes. And in a uh, theoretical perfect world, that software will identify the best candidates based on certain language and keywords and skills and experience. But in practice, that's not usually what happens. Essentially, these pieces of software are not as robust as they could be. And they also tend to be a little bit finicky about what they accept and what they don't accept. And the result of that is a lot of great candidates being overlooked. And especially, you know, when they're coming from a non-traditional background, and they don't have an easy way to slot in those keywords and slot in that experience because they haven't had it yet. So with the applicant tracking system, which is what the piece of software is called, Essentially, you know, the average role gets 250 resumes. The applicant tracking system scans and, and filters a lot of them. And recruiters really go look at the top 20 or so. 
So 20 are getting in front of a human and then they bring in four to six people for that interview. So if you do the math, you have about, you know, a 2% or, or less chance of getting in the door when you apply online. So that's the first issue. And the second issue is the way that we convey our value. So, you know, we're all people, you know, we're individuals, we have hobbies and interests and ambitions and strengths and weaknesses. And it's just really hard to convey that in an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. So I think the other side of things here is just that resumes are a poor way to illustrate value. And the analogy or the story that I like to use is when I was a kid, you know, end of summer, we would have soccer tryouts. And, you know, I didn't show up to the tryout with a piece of paper that talked about how many goals I scored last year and how far I could kick the ball. Like I went out and I played and then the coach would either tell me, you know, hey, you're good enough. You're on the team or, you know, you're not quite there yet. So better luck next year. And oh, here's some feedback, which we also don't usually get in the job search. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem is that a lot of people just don't know how to correctly express themselves on a resume and and who could blame them because we're so different and we're all sort of forced into this one medium, which doesn't make sense. But on top of that, a resume is just a really bad tool for selling. So one, we use this language and this jargon that we don't use anywhere else. And so, you know, the the analogy that I like to use there is if I live in the New York area, and so, you know, New York is a pretty diverse place culturally and and all that. So if you have two people at a bar in New York, and they both speak English as their third language, and that's how they're communicating, this isn't a language that both of them are used to communicating in. And so sure, they can have a conversation, but some things will probably get lost in translation. And that's just naturally what's going to happen. It's the same type of thing with the resume where we use this weird resume language that we don't use anywhere else. And on the other side, most of the hiring managers don't read anything in that language either. It's usually the recruiters who are a little bit more adept at that language. And so it's just really hard to convey your value accurately when we're using this medium or this language that we don't use anywhere else and we're not super familiar with. And then finally, when it comes to sales, which is my background, you know, the thing they teach us on day one is that if you want to If you want to win, you need to make your pitch about the other person. You know, what's in it for them? Why are they going to benefit? And a resume is just only talking about you and your past. And so we we sort of cross our fingers and hope that the person reading it can connect the dots. And that connection is even harder when your background doesn't look like that traditional candidate that they're they're looking for. So I would say that the biggest issue comes down to the fact that one, we don't have a great way to clarify our value and make it understood. And then two, we also are forced to play into this system where a robot is essentially deciding who's qualified and who's not. And when you look at the numbers, 75% of applicants out there use online applications as their primary means of getting in the door for a job. So 75% of people are out there using this crazy system that only has a 2% chance of success rate. And that metric is interviews. It's not even what we want, which is offers. So that is a long-winded answer as to why the, the process doesn't work. But I think the context is important for, for people to understand. Totally. Yeah, it, that makes so much sense as you break it down. And I'm thinking as you're talking about one of my clients who is a major international organization, and they just announced last week on LinkedIn that they have a totally new AI system for evaluating resumes. So this is what's happening. You're not Mm -hmm. even getting to a human until most of the resumes have been totally filtered through. You're already out of the process. And if you don't know the rules of the game, and to your point, the game is already working against all of us. And I will say too, as somebody who advises companies on the hiring 
process and comes at things oftentimes from an HR perspective. To be honest, most companies don't even put a lot of stock in resumes, which is crazy because that's, like you say, that's the golden ticket. That's what gets you through. That's what you have to use. But so many recruiters and HR managers and managers can speak to how there's a lot of resumes where people are embellishing, let's say. (laughs) But it's not working for either side, really. And then it's getting caught up in these non-human processes. And to your point, it's it's all of these factors coming together, which is making these, you know, really excited, out of the gates, new college grads, or, or again, maybe they've had that first job and they're ready for that second quote unquote real job. They're just hitting this wall. And I, I'm sure those listening have kids or know of kids that are in that moment. And it's really hard to know how to help them. So Austin, what is your process and why does it work as opposed to what we've just talked about? Yeah. So, you know, we talked a lot about what's not working, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, where people are kind of hitting a wall, but usually, you know, people are still getting hired. And so when that's the case, when you see that the results are happening and you're feeling like you're in the channel that's not working, you need to go find the channel that is working. You know, where are the hires coming from? And if you look at the data, it's really referrals, word of mouth, networking, whatever you want to call it. But if you know somebody at the company in some capacity and they can refer you in, that makes up about 40 to 80% of hires, depending on the company and the industry and, and the role. But even you know, at a minimum, 40% is much, much higher than what you're looking at with online applications. So the first part of the process that I leverage is really focused on getting referrals. And you don't necessarily have to know somebody at the company right this very second to get a referral from them. Like we're humans, we're capable of building relationships. It does require putting ourselves out there. And maybe in most cases, that's a big step outside of our comfort zone. But once you understand that and you say, okay, here's the person that could potentially influence my ability to get hired. Let me go reach out to them. Let me try to build a relationship with them. That's really where the magic starts to happen because you're playing in this space where more hires are coming from. But on top of that, it's just so much easier to convey your value in a conversation. And when you have a person who's sitting there listening to you. So that's the first piece. It's getting out there and understanding who has the ability to influence the hiring decision for the role you want at the companies you're interested in and reaching out and starting to build a relationship with them. The second piece is that value illustration side. So while resumes make it a little bit frustrating when it comes to conveying that value, if we step outside of that box and just say, well, I want these people to know what I bring to the table. What's the best way for me to show them? And you go down that path, that tends to be much, much easier for job seekers. But also on the other side, it tends to be much easier for hiring managers to see your value when you convey it in in that form. So for this process, I I call it a value validation project. And essentially what that is, is a deliverable that you put together that illustrates your value. And it could be anything from an actual, you know, slide deck with some ideas. It could be a portfolio that you've put together. A lot of the people that I work with while they're job searching, I also have them actively working on projects that will allow them to essentially build real world experience. And based on those results and based on the processes, we, we kind of build out case studies and we have them on a portfolio and you can share them on your LinkedIn or wherever else. But now people can actually get inside your head and see how you work through these problems and what you bring to the table. There's so many different ways that, that this can shake out and, and we, can, we can go through some examples. But 
if you step outside of that box of I can only convey my value in a resume and a cover letter, and you start to say instead, well, what does this company really need? Why are they hiring for this role? And then how can I put together something that shows that I'm the best person to deliver against that? That's that's really, really powerful. And so if you combine the two things where we have that referral, and then we also have this very, very clear illustration of value. One, we have somebody vouching for us and we have people who understand our value. But two, we're also doing stuff that nobody else in the job search is doing. And so we're not only taking it a step above, but we're also kind of sidestepping everybody else and you know, making ourselves a bit more of a unique value proposition to these companies. I like that. So let's let's talk through the mechanics of this. Sure. Starting with the first component. When you say reach out, make those connections, get that referral, what does this really look like? First, who are we even reaching out to? Is this the HR manager? Is this a recruiter? Is this someone maybe managing the team we want to be a part of? How do we reach out? Is this on LinkedIn? Is this by email? I mean, we've all been there where we've reached out to somebody and got no response. That's really frustrating. That's hard. So how do we get over that hump and actually access these people? And then what do we say when we get to them? You know, I know with the folks that I've worked that have been through job transition, the impulse, I think, is because that that old way of thinking is to get a hold of them and then talk all about yourself and try to pitch yourself to them. But rather than it being about the company and what value you can provide, it's more about here's who I am. Here's all the great things about me. Here's my degree. Here's my GPA. So can you just walk us through those mechanics? Because it sounds really easy and great to make those connections. But I know in practice, it's not that obvious and it's not that easy. And if you don't have a lot of experience with it, it can feel daunting. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the best place to start is just kind of working our way back from the end goal. So if you look at the whole process here and we assume that the first step is reaching out to people and, and the final step is getting a job offer, we can sort of map out the steps that happen in between those two things. And what we can do to start and then what we can tweak as we go is just assigning success rates to every step in that process and working our way backwards. So if we know our success rates or we ballpark a number and maybe we have a a bit of a conservative estimate, we can say, okay, if I do X number of this first step, it should result in Y amount of the final step. So let's say your success rate from final round interview to offer is 33%. And maybe you want two job offers. So that means you need six final round interviews, you know, with that success rate. And not every interview you go on is going to result in a final round. There'll be some attrition there. So maybe that's also a 33% success rate from first round to final round. So that means we need about 18 first round interviews. And hopefully those are coming from referrals. So you need to have at least 18 conversations. But again, not everybody we talk to is going to refer us in. So that number is, is looking more like 30 to 50 conversations, which doesn't have to be a 30-minute Zoom call. It could be a conversation over email or you know somebody you've connected with over LinkedIn. But 30 to 50 interactions with people who are in a position to get you hired can result in those 18 first round, six finals, and, and two offers. But then we need to do the outreach. And assuming you know when you start, you probably have about a 10% response rate. You can bump that up to 20 or 30% if you're you know doing a good job of testing your templates and trying different things and also following up um, pretty consistently. So assuming you know that 30% number, let's say, that means we need to reach out to about 150 contacts to get 30 to 50 conversations, 18 first round, six finals, two offers. 
And you can tweak those numbers as you go. But if we just assume those as a starting point, reaching out to 150 people is our sort of baseline. And that's the number where I start to see the odds swing in the candidate's favor a little bit, even if they've never sent a cold email or this is a brand new process for them. And so how do we break out that 150 or or where do those people come from? So essentially the way that that works in my mind is you just pick 10 to 15 target companies that you're really excited to work for. And you're going to go find 10 to 15 people at each of those companies. If you sort of mix and match there, the minimum would be 100. I'd encourage you to have 15 on one side at the very minimum. So you get to that 150. And then who do you look for? Well, really, the goal is to find the person with the the most influence over the hiring decision. So a lot of people do immediately go to recruiters or folks in HR. And that's not usually who I recommend focusing your time on because one, those people are really busy. And they get a lot of emails from people like you who have that same, you know, idea. So there's a lot of people showing up in their inbox and saying, hey, here's this open role. Here's my resume. Get me in the door. And it's really hard to stand out when when that's the case. But on top of that, even if you do stand out, you know, recruiters can get you an interview, but they don't really have any any say or influence beyond that interview. Mm-hmm. So instead of just focusing on the person who is one, hard to get a hold of, and then two, can only influence that first step. Let's try to go find somebody who might be your manager if you got hired or somebody who might be your peer or colleague sitting at the desk next to you. And let's start there and then maybe work our way out from those people because they can refer you in and get you an interview just the same, but they also should be able to have some sort of influence over the end hiring decision. And that makes it really worth our time to go build a relationship with them. So that's where we start 10 to 15 companies and then 10 to 15 of those people who are hopefully on that hiring team. And you can find them through LinkedIn. You can just take the job title and plug it into LinkedIn. And you can use some of the filters to filter by, you know, company and location. And uh, you can throw in your alma mater or, you know, some of these other things that will allow you to narrow the scope or find some potential connections. And then we, we really start to reach out. And, you know, to your point, Emily, the outreach piece, the mechanics there are, they sound simple, but they're not as simple as they sound. And they're actually pretty counterintuitive, I would say, because, a lot of people, they end up reaching out with what I call a, a me mindset. And that essentially means sending an email to this person and saying, hey, you have this role open. Here's my resume. Uh, thanks a lot. And what ends up happening there is one of a couple things. So first, that person will probably just funnel you back to the online application if you do that without any previous context. But then two, this ask that you're making, even if it's, you know, can you review my resume or can you introduce me to somebody or, you know, anything along those lines, that's a pretty selfish ask right off the bat. And they don't even know you. Yeah, they've never met you before. And you're essentially asking this person to go to their manager and say, hey, this person is worth tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I'll vouch for their work. And and there's just no way anybody can do that in good faith off of one email. So you're probably not going to get many responses. And even if you do, you're probably not going to get the results you want simply because that person just truly can't go to bat for you. So instead, what I like to do is try to make the initial outreach about the other person. I try to find something about them, whether it's, you know, that alumni connection or whether there's something in their background. You know, if you were emailing me, maybe you say, hey, Austin, I saw you made the the transition from healthcare into technology and Microsoft. You know, that's really impressive. Or maybe I find their portfolio online or whatever it is. But I'm trying to make the outreach about the other person And then I'm trying to continue down that path to the point where I can identify what they care about and get more information about the team and the role and where I can potentially add value. 
And then I'm going to go put together that value validation project. But I'm really working to make it about them up front so that we establish a bit of a rapport. And then that transition into helping that person is a lot more natural. And when I help them and I showcase my value through that help, I'm much more likely to have an offer to be referred from them or have them go to bat for me. Whereas before, you know, just showing up and throwing something at them when we've never met, you know, that has the opposite effect. So that is uh, an incredibly oversimplified and high level overview of, of the approach. But really what it comes down to is, you know, can you make the outreach about the other person? And can you try to give more than you take for the first couple of interactions? And if you bring that mindset to relationship building, you're going to build a lot more relationships and you're going to get a lot more traction. It's just laws of relationships in general, Mm -hmm. you know, friendships, romantic relationships. If you're there to take, 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 and you never give, Mm -hmm. then that's not a healthy relationship. And that person isn't going to be able to be around you. And our very good mutual friend, Daniel Botero talks about making deposits before you make withdrawals. And by the way, he has an incredible program called Mastering College to Career and is exceptional and also a great resource for people going through this transition. But I agree. It's it's the principles of relationship building more so than job seeking, or at least job seeking comes after there's some sort of established relationship there. If we jump right into it and if we're impatient about that, They'll just either redirect us or tune us out. And obviously, that's not what we're looking for. Okay, so now we've established this relationship, knowing that some people still won't necessarily respond, but others will. And we're going through this process. Talk us through the mechanics of the value validation project and maybe give us some specific examples. Yeah, absolutely. So really what it comes down to is putting together a deliverable that you can send to, you know, the person you're trying to get in with. And this deliverable should show that you've done your research. It should show that you understand or or have a clear idea of what this company and this teams and this role's goals and challenges and initiatives are. And then there should be some sort of value add to those things. And that could be new ideas, that could be presentation of data in a certain way that could be just, you know, tying your background more directly into the things that they're looking for, connecting those dots for them. There are a number of different ways to do this. I find that slide decks tend to be the most effective way to make this happen. To give an example, one of the people that I was working with who was a student at uh, University of Washington, she she was looking for a, a role at Microsoft. She wanted to work at, in a rotational program there. And so, This was a highly competitive program. A lot of college students are applying for it, and they're all kind of going through that traditional funnel. They're sending in their apps. They're tweaking their resumes and cover letters. So she did that. She had a great resume. She had a great cover letter. But then she went out and she said, okay, let me go find a product that could use some marketing magic. And after doing some research, she realized that Microsoft had recently launched Teams, and it wasn't picking up as much traction as they'd hoped. This this is pre covid and so Slack was really, you know, eating up the, the market there and Microsoft was struggling to, to get some traction. So she said, what can I do to help teams get more market share? What ideas can I come up with? So she went out and she did a ton of research. She was reading reviews in the app store. She was watching walkthroughs and tutorials. She signed up for both products herself. She actually went out and surveyed people who were using each of the products. And through that information, she identified some areas of opportunity 
And so the the first was, and they were all really pain points. Um, but the first was, you know, people didn't really seem to understand when they should use Teams versus sending an email or you know using any of these other tools that Microsoft has. And that came directly out of feedback that people had mentioned. And so she came up with a solution for Microsoft to have like an interactive map where when you sign into the product or if you need some help, maybe you click a button and this map shows up and it tells you, hey, here's everything we have to offer. And here's when we believe you should use it for, you know, maximal efficiency or whatever it is. The second one was was my personal favorite where, you know, can we introduce teams to people where it's beneficial for them to use it? Microsoft already has 155 million office users at, at that time. How do we get teams in front of those people? Well, you know, one of the most frustrating things is when you try to send a slide deck that's too big to email, what, mm-hmm. what are you supposed to do? So her idea was, what if we had a pop-up that said, hey, PowerPoint says, hey, this file's too large to email. Why don't you try sending it through Teams? And then maybe I send it to you and then you type back in Teams, you know, thanks for sending Austin. Let me take a look. And then maybe you say, hey, can we change this in slide 11 or there's a typo in slide 10 or whatever. But now we're having a conversation in Teams, which was the end goal anyways, right? But we're doing that because Teams presented us with this opportunity to use it when it was beneficial for us to use it versus, you know, Microsoft just kind of shoving it down people's throats. And so she came up with some ideas um, like that. She had an additional idea. And then at the very end, she had some slides around, here's who I am, here's my resume, my LinkedIn, my interests. And she started sending that to all of the, the people who were hiring for that specific program. And as we talked about, some of those were total guesses. She reached out to enough people where she hit a few of the right ones. She got in the door, she goes through the interview process, and she eventually gets the offer. And that project was really the main focal point of a lot of her conversations because one, it was valuable, but two, it was something that nobody else was doing. And so she really showed that, you know, hey, I'm the most valuable person, but also I'm willing and ready to roll up my sleeves and get creative because I want this more than anybody else. And so that that's just one example off the top of my head. But a lot of these projects essentially boil down to that structure. So let me do some research. Let me learn everything I possibly can about this company through both my own research, but also the conversations that I have through these informational interviews. And then let me try to identify some of those areas where I can add value or tie in my experience. And this is such a great way to, you know, a lot of people I talk to say, I I know I could do this role if somebody would give me a chance. Mm -hmm. And this is such a great way for you to show what you bring to the table, rather than just kind of telling people and hoping that they connect the dots. I know that people who have used this strategy have not only gotten the attention of the company they were trying to become a part of, but it's also gotten the attention of that company's competitors. Mm -hmm. And so those candidates become hot commodities. And it's a total game changer because now they have lots of companies in the same industry vying for their attention and they get their pick. It is absolutely such a good idea. And as we've mentioned before, at any stage of a person's job search, I remember my husband got the advice early on, and and it's always stuck with us, that kind of similar line of thought. If you want to get a promotion, start doing the job you want to be promoted into, Mm -hmm. rather than saying, once I'm promoted, I can do all these things. So it's, it's the same concept. Show your value and what you can add in the future rather than being put in that awkward position of talking about all that you've done in the past, because that doesn't necessarily project forward. And if you're uh, a new grad and you don't have a lot of job experience, 
that's especially an awkward conversation because you don't have a lot to refer back to. Whereas if you have this project, like you said, you have so much substance for those conversations and you're proving that you have something to add today and Mm -hmm. moving forward. Huge, huge. And this isn't necessarily more work. I mean, I know there's a lot of steps, but it took that young man a lot of effort to apply to 1200 jobs. (laughs) You know, so I think to your point, it's, it's a matter of, do you want to do the stuff that is actually effective? Or do you want to do the stuff that feels like you're doing activity, but you're really going to be frustrated at the end result? Yeah, exactly. And you have so much to gain, right? Like a new job with the salary that you're going to have. And especially if that job is aligned with what you're looking for and isn't just any job that decided to take a chance on you, but one that you actively you know, sought out and, and selected. There's so much to gain from a couple extra hours of work. In my opinion, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. And this even positions you better for salary negotiations. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're in a better place all around. There's wins in multiple ways. Okay, Austin, as you've said, we've just scratched the surface and I know you have great tools and resources and a deeper program. So if those who are listening want this for their kids or maybe want this for themselves, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So the two best places are are the website and and LinkedIn. So the website is cultivatedculture.com. If you're on the homepage and you scroll down a little bit, we we have a couple of tools. We have a resume builder. We have a resume scanner, a resume bullet analyzer. We have a tool for helping people find emails. They're all free. You don't have to pay for them at any point. And then the site also has a lot of the info that we talked about. So there's a whole guide that walks through the process. Um, There's a guide on value validation projects. So that's a great resource. And then LinkedIn, I post there pretty much daily. I'm super active and that's a really great place to connect with me. So if you know if it's the people listening or if it's your children or, or whoever it is, have them just send me a connection request with a personal note, mention the podcast. I'll be happy to connect with them. But yeah, those are the two best places. And Emily, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is a fabulous conversation and so relevant to again, a transition, a time in life that's already uh, overwhelming and anxiety producing. And then on top of it, we just have this crazy um, international context and job market and you know, so many things are in flux. So your proven process for getting through this successfully is so helpful. And again, is exactly what I know a lot of our listeners need to hear right now. So thanks again, Austin. We sure do appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.